the label witch is something that has been created to be a label of fear and a label of oppression. Hence, with the reclaiming tradition, why it's so important to be a witch, because it's like saying, this is me, this is what I'm defining to be a witch. My name is Marigold Santos. I'm a visual artist based out of Montreal, Quebec and Calgary, Alberta. I am a Philippine ex-Canadian um, woman and I am also a Libra middle child. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what you feel sums you up as a, as a person, a Libra middle child? Yeah, you know what? It does, actually. I feel like being a Libra has been something that's been coming up a lot recently. And it gives me joy, so I'm okay with with saying that. So how did you get into astrology? Is that something that's like one of your main forays into witchiness? Um, you know what? It could be definitely an entry point into the witchiness of things. Um, I think that astrology carries a lot of magic around it and, um, there's a lot of potential. And to me, I feel like magic is really all about potential and, um, the ability to choose, you know, one way or another. And I think there's a lot of power in that. So if I had to say power and magic are very intertwined and choice is really up there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, I think that your art also, um, deals with the vulnerability, the power of vulnerability as well. Like, um, there's something in your artist statement and I'm probably going to misquote it, but I think you said like, um, you love precariousness. Yes. Now that's something that yeah. most people would try to avoid would be precariousness. So yeah. can you get into that? Yeah. When I talk about precariousness, um, I talk about precariousness and identity because I think oftentimes we really try to, and I do it myself too, sum ourselves up. And um, actually the ambiguity of everything is really a special thing where you don't really have to, you know, get caught up in a binary and be one way or another. And actually the spectrum in between is really where all the, the specialness sort of sits. And so, um, precariousness to me is really this idea about teetering and, um, not very, uh, or like this, um, instability and embracing that flexibility and, um, a lot of that too can be tied into my work where I really celebrate um, multifariousness and fragmentation and hybridity and all of those things can contribute to this idea of precariousness and identity. And do you think that, I mean, it seems obvious, but I'm going to ask the question anyway, is that related to your family being a family of immigrants? Yeah, my immigrant background is a really big part of my art and a really big part of my identity. Um, being, my family had immigrated to Canada from the Philippines in 1988. So I was a young girl. I was seven when, uh, we moved to Canada or I turned seven rather. And, um, for me at the time, my main concern as a child was just to integrate as best as I could into Canadian culture. And that meant learning how to speak English and learning how to dress like a Canadian kid and, understanding this different geography and weather and social landscape that I was not used to. And being a child, you know, your experience of the world is quite limited still, but it's also a very raw and pure way of really experiencing things as well. And so, yeah, it just, uh, it's deeply, it's deeply rooted to that time where I kind of made this these choices that, um, to sort of adapt and become resilient. And I didn't even really know it until way after the fact. And as an adult reflecting back onto that time in my life and why it it features so prominently in my artwork. That was going to be my next question Mm -hmm. is that how does that, how do those feelings manifest in physical form? Yeah. So, um, Reflecting on that time where it was such a pivotal moment where I stopped speaking my mother tongue and adopted English. And to this day, I don't speak Tagalog anymore, but my parents speak to me in Tagalog and I understand it fluently, but I just don't speak it. And I respond back in English. And I think, um, I really think about those moments about being a person that um, is affected by the multiple homes and the multiple senses of self that you can develop when you're a person of diaspora. And so 
um, my work now really deals with this idea of identity and selfhood that is very fragmented, that is very multiple, but that the power in multiplicity is the essence of the work. And, and again, I talk about like the power of choice and the power of multiplicity and gaining strength in those, um, in those notions, and that's really where the magic lies. You said magic. Can you define magic? Your definition, obviously. We, we gather perspectives one at a time here, so. Yeah. For me, magic is a lot of things. It's really not one thing. Um, magic is potential. Um, magic is the idea to incite change through choice. And the result of that is also magic in some ways. Um, magic is imagination and creativity. And I think magic is the unknown. So it's all those things and more. Mm-hmm. And your art deals with sort of like uh, permanence and impermanence. You're, ta- you're speaking about diaspora. So how did you get into tattooing, which is the most permanent, I think, art yeah. form? How, yeah. did, how did you transition from um, being a, you know, a painter sculptor into a tattooer? Yeah, I mean, for me, my work already at heart of it is it's, it's quite interdisciplinary. So um, I will cycle through painting and drawing and sculpture and installation work, some performance work, animation, sound, all sorts of things. And tattooing was just a natural progression to go there. So I don't ever consider myself a tattoo artist. I just am still a visual artist that also tattoos. So it's just another way for me to be making marks. And for me, um, what I found was that in my studio, most people will know my work as very big paintings, really large scale. And, and we'll, we'll post a bunch of visuals um, on the Instagram and in the show notes for this episode so you can see with your eyes what we're talking about here. Go on. Yeah, and so, um, and that's a very intimate thing that I have with my work itself. It's very private. I'm in the studio and not a lot of people see my process um, and I kind of keep it that way. But tattooing is this other thing where I have a very intimate moment with somebody else and it's a very private, intimate moment between me and a person where we have a agreement and a kind of like a sacred space together uh, where we ha- are sharing a moment and that is specifically they've asked me to permanently place one of my images onto their body that they then live with for the rest of their lives and so this is an honor that it is, someone is giving and me it's one. an honor for me and yeah. it's an honor for each other um oftentimes after tattooing I say to them, you know, I I really give a big thanks and I say like this tattoo is going to follow you for the rest of your life and it will um it will follow you to every country you visit and it will see every lover you have until the day you die and so thank mm. you for having me be part of your life basically. Um so it's quite it's quite important to me and it's quite special and I wanted to also include that in my art practice cuz like I said painting, um, drawing in the studio is a really um, private time for me. And so it was, um, it just opened up my practice to, to have other individuals in there. And you said you kind of prefer that nobody sees your process, but can you describe it to us or is even the, even the description too private? No, the process of, of making work in the studio or a yeah. process. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's, I guess it's private only because to me, like my space of a creative agency, which is my studio, is just a really special space. And so it has my energy in there. And my energy sometimes is, you know, tired and lazy and procrastinating. And other times it's really hyper-focused. And I just give, I give the credence to that. So if, if I want to come into my studio and spend three hours mucking about, then I will, you know, and it's sort of like a warm up and I don't think people really need to see that. <laughs> but then other times when I'm in the flow, I'm really in the flow and I don't need to, like, I, I would prefer not to be interrupted. So mm-hmm. then I just, um, just allow that process to sort of flow out of me mm-hmm. and then I can go for a long time. Do yeah. you do any performance art where that, that process is, um, visible? Um, I have done some performances that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, one, when I was doing my master's at Concordia, I did, because I'm also a musician, I did this performance where I drew on my skin. I drew a whole bunch of these eyeballs and, and these marks, and then I picked up my guitar and I 
sang a song about these ghost children, um, which were versions of myself as a, a woman um, immigrant and sort of having myself be fragmented. And I sang this song, um, and it was a loop, and it looped and looped for 20, 25 minutes. I also did another performance where I made a whole bunch of black fingers out of wax and they were cast of my fingers, middle fingers, <laughs> a lot, and thumbs, and um, they were individual, and I stuck them on the gallery walls, and then I lit them one by one. And then as they were all lit, the wax would drip down the white walls, and the wax was black because they were coming from these fingers. And then afterwards, I blew them out, and they extinguished them. And then the remnants of those black wax finger candles just... Uh, drip down the gallery walls for the rest of the exhibition. They've remained in the gallery in that space. So there were people there who saw how the drips happened, and then there were other people who showed up later and just saw the result. Yeah, and they could just um, surmise what had happened. Mm -hmm. Super magical. (laughs) Yeah, that exhibition um, was one um, in Calgary at Stride Gallery, and Stride Gallery has almost like two rooms that join up to be one. And so when I had that exhibition, I really wanted to have two distinct exhibitions, so two distinct bodies of work, but that had a relationship with each other and had a conversation, because clearly it's my work. So the mm-hmm. first side was called Coven Ring. Um, and that, ding! <laughs> ding. <laughs> we heard the C word. <laughs> Coven Ring. And Coven Ring really had to do with the work um, that I had made that drew parallels between witchcraft and boxing boxing like fighting yeah and it's a kind of a strange thing because you know um at first glance you don't really can't really tell what there those parallels might be but at the time of um at the time of my work I was um, starting to really research a, a lot more about witchcraft and I can tell you a little bit about later why when we talk about Filipino folklore but mm. but to go back I started uh just just researching witchcraft in general. Yeah, there's actually, you know, the more that we talk, Amy, there's a lot more that I can I can really tell you about and share. But yes, so I was researching witchcraft, but at the exact same time, I had taken up boxing as a recreational sport for myself, mm-hmm. um, just completely unrelated. But as I was getting very serious about boxing, um, I was also starting to research that because naturally that's what you do when you're an artist. And I found this essay called On Boxing by Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, yeah, she's like a feminist author. For those of you who haven't heard of her, we love her around these parts. Yeah, Joyce Carol Oates, look her up, y'all. And the thing that people don't know about Joyce Carol Oates was that she's actually a boxing aficionado because her father used to take her to these boxing matches when she was a kid. So she's very well versed in, in boxing. And she wrote this really amazing essay about boxing called On Boxing. Mm hmm. And what I found really important in that essay was how she was talking about in the ring, which is a magic circle, which is a circle that has these boundaries between spectator and the sport, um, how there is uh, ritualistic tendencies. There's an agreement between who's watching and who's in the ring. Um, But she also just talks about how your opponent is your mirror other Mm. and how when you're essentially fighting your opponent you're fighting this other version of yourself and i i found that quite Mm -hmm. important especially because my work really deals with multiplicity but in a consensual way when you're in that boxing ring it's not like you're just going and beating on someone like there's consent is is highly practiced in the ring yeah it's an agreement Mm -hmm. you know it's an agreement between you and your opponent and then your opponent is your mirror self so um whatever moves you make and whatever um gains you make and losses it's really this dialogue between you and yourself in some ways so i found that really important and really applicable to my work um and also boxing is really interesting and weird there's like (laughs) you know there's a lot of um regalia that you wear you know you you come into the ring with these robes and the trumpetous Uh, soundtrack of victory behind you yeah yeah and so a lot of um there's a lot of you know there's um these hanging uh, heavy bags that become surrogates for the body that you punch and they're, they swing and, you know, like, and they're, they're hung from the ceiling and, you know, it's kind of macabre and it reminds us of, you know, persecution and sort of like the dark history of witchcraft. But um, there is, there was a lot of things that I was just quite interested in, in, you know, this idea of even like footwork, you know, and dancing. 
I'm going to interrupt for two seconds to ask if you remember Milford Kemp, who was the Jimi Hendrix of Montreal. Do you remember that guy? He would be up on the mountain on Sundays with like a little, and he no. dressed like Jimi Hendrix, like big hat with a feather. And he, I started talking to him because I love a weirdo. Like I, I'm like, you, yeah. what's You're your my story? People. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel comfortable with you. Um, <laughs> most people would have just been terrified of him because he was quite a, a character, you know, but I started, I gave him a tip, you know, he's a, he was busking and he said, Oh, here's my DVD. Here's great. And he was also, he was a dancer and a boxer. And I thought of him because of what you just said. Like he would, map out like almost like a choreography in the ring and then he would draw it oh my gosh. and so he made these like pieces of visual art that looked like out of fractal geometric but it was like a dance that he had drawn inside the ring Beautiful. so yeah boxing and witchcraft like we never would have thought of it never. but here we are <laughs> <laughs> exactly you never would have thought it and I didn't either and it was really like that essay that I that I read that really introduced and also I was in the ring and I was punching and sweating and considering my footwork and really like conscious of my body in a different way you know um so that that body of work yielded a lot of imagery of um, individuals or figures that were covered in robes and those robes were painted with various different patterns and um, magic hour sunsets and um, white witch moths all sorts of things that really like kind of integrated both together and I made this really big heavy bag that was um, painted very realistically and then surrounded by gold as though it was some sort of like sacred object um, which to you it was which it really was, yeah. yeah. And it's a body, you know, it's a surrogate of a body. Um, and so going back to this show at Stride, Coven Ring was on the one side, and on the other side was this other show that I had called Invisible Mother. And Invisible Mother also really deals a lot with witchcraft. And um, really the essence of that show was tapping into this idea of the mother figure and how the mother figure becomes foundations for a lot of thought and um, and a lot of lessons in life, but that through our learning, a lot of women have been persecuted and through their loss have we really learned and gained. So it was a lot of honoring of that. Um, and that's where those those witch, or those, well, they were witch fingers and <laughs> those black candle fingers really was a sort of shrine um, that were lit in honor of, you know, fallen women over time and you can really take that as you will for you know just you know women's efforts along history in mm -hmm. general mm -hmm. um but specifically in my work in that particular body of work it was really informed by many things one of the things was um the story of the hand of glory do you know the hand of glory i don't so, and I'm going to assume that some of our listeners don't either, so yeah, you're going to so, tell us. And I, and I had just like discovered the Hand of Glory while I was doing um, research on the mandrake plant. Mm -hmm. and so, well, I'm sorry, why? Why yeah. were you researching that? Because you're an artist and you research random yeah, things. Yeah, I just yeah. research random things. And yeah. The mandrake plant, just to, just to tap into what you're saying there, was interesting to me because it, was, it is a plant that... Um, the bottom half of it, which would be underground, um, in the ground, the root systems look like a body. They look like a female body for the most part. And then the upper part that's above ground are like the leaves. Um, and the mandrake plant has been used for various things over time. But uh, I was interested in that because there's a particular character in Filipino folklore, which we will get to. And so that really reminded me of the mandrake plant. But um, back to the hand of glory, there was... In my research, I discovered this, this thing, this object called the Hand of Glory. And what it was, apparently there is only one that exists in the world, and it's preserved and in some sort of museum in Britain somewhere. If Usually, I can remember that's where correctly. all of the, the artifacts <laughs> end up in our Western uh, <laughs> museums. Exactly, and apparently this hand um, is supposed to be the severed hand of a hanged man who was a criminal, because that's why they had hanged him, supposedly, <laughs> mm -hmm. allegedly. Mm -hmm. And let's see if I get this right. This severed hand then gets pickled in the rendered fat of that man. Okay. And then what happens is this hand becomes a magical object where you can light the fingers, and the fingers um, then 
so then the another criminal supposedly mm-hmm. can then hold this hand if you get a hold of it, a hold of this hand, and you can um, light the fingers. And I think once you do, you can place a hex on people who are asleep in a house. Mm. And apparently, if you like light the fingers, and one of them doesn't light, it sort of indicates that somebody else is still awake in the house. And the only way to extinguish this hand is through dousing it with milk, and particularly breast milk. Mm-hmm. So so just really interesting, fascinating things. And then through my research, um, I found this thing that said, well, the very first hand of glory was, um, was supposedly from the severed hand of one of the first witches that was persecuted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought, like, you know that that was just incredibly fascinating to think that, of course, like this very powerful object tool could summon up all this magic, and, of course, it's going to come from a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that really started a, a big bunch of work of dealing with wax and fats and dripping and transition and magic and, again, fragmentations. We're talking about dismemberment and severing. Um but yeah, that work was really quite interesting. And so the other thing, too, to get back to this whole mandrake business, was that the hand of glory was a man de gloire, which something is like man de gore, and it was like a bastardization of like man de gore mandrake. There was something, there was some sort of relationship there. I, I can't really remember off the top of my head every single detail. I am just an artist that does some research here and there. Yeah, and again, here at Missing Witches, we are not looking for anybody to be the expert on anything other than their own perspective. Yeah. So we are gathering perspectives one at a time. Amazing. (laughs) So how heavily ritualized is your process? It sounds like, uh, I mean, a lot goes into every piece. Um, I would say that I do have my own various rituals for my creative process. Everything from um, how I start my day and putting on my specific uniform, which is usually like a boiler suit that's covered in paint and splotches and lots of artistic things. <laughs> and um, it's sort of um, it bits and splotches from yeah, all of your works leading it, up to that point. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm also wearing a boiler suit. But um, I If have you don't know what a boiler things. suit is, it's like coveralls. It's like a garage coveralls or like a military, like a full one piece. Exactly, mm-hmm. coveralls. And um, I, have ver- I have many because I just like to collect, because I'm an artist. Um, comfortable oui, exactly. So, but this one is my um, presentable one. So I'm wearing this for Amy, but the one in my Thank studio you. is very, it's covered and it's crusty. And <laughs> I love it, and it's comfortable. And um, yeah, and you know, that kind of thing factors into my ritualistic parts of making my work. Um, all the way down to also listening to very specific things. Um, I listen to a lot of music, a lot of podcasts, a lot of audiobooks while I'm while I'm making. But whenever I'm painting or drawing and I have to make decisions, then I turn all the music off and I have to be it has to be very quiet and I have to very make yeah, I have to make like really important decisions without any kind of um, distraction or yeah, that that sort of thing. Um, also, you know, constant snacking. I'm always constantly snacking on chips. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just little snacks because I just love snacks. And um, you can also just see this tattoo across my fingers there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, across my knuckles, it says, or my, what would you call these? Like the middle knuckles? knuckles? Yeah, yeah, mi- yeah, middle knuckles. Um, it says merienda, which is a Tagalog word. For um, which is my mother tongue, and it says snack. <laughs> and people see this and they go, "Oh, is that your grandmother's name?" And sometimes I just go, "Yeah," because yeah. I don't really want to snack, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it, ba- it basically means snack or to snack. So um, I was actually a little bit distracted earlier by this piece. I'm pointing at another uh, hand tattoo that Marigold has. Um, it looks kind of like um, a honeycomb, um, but like a little more scientific and a little more representational. Do you want to describe it? Yeah, this is actually um, a, a hand poke tattoo that I received <gasps> from Julie on Instagram. She goes by the People's Ink, mm-hmm. and she calls herself a bruja, which is a witch. You um, love a bruja. She's a Filipinx healer, and um, she specifically tattoos 
Filipino tribal tattoos that have been influenced by various different tribes in the Philippines, and uh, she tattoos them on POC bodies. So I was honored to have her tattoo my hand, my right hand, which is my dominant hand and my working hand. And I'd asked her to give me a talisman that um, honored my ancestors. So we had come up with this image together and the pattern that looks like honeycomb is actually snakeskin. Mm, we see lots of repeating patterns yeah, in nature. <laughs> definitely. Uh -huh. So snakeskin, there's um, centipede legs. These are um, ferns that are five-pointed um, to represent, like, the family members that I have. And this really back part here is sort of the back end of a boat. It's a boat that uh, you travel into the afterlife. Mm. And then there's a little star here, which is the star from my mother's providence. Big uh, respect to her is um, she really comes up with a lot of the designs together with with her clients and um, it's a really beautiful ritual when you go and get a tattoo from her so it's a it's a ceremony from beginning to end where you say prayers and you um, bring offerings to your ancestors and then she does the poking technique and then um, you sort of do uh, sort of a thank you and gratitude afterwards and yeah it's a really beautiful thing and I highly recommend everyone looking her up because she's can you say the name again yeah so her Instagram name is or her Instagram handle is The People's Inc. The People's Inc. And we'll link you to that in the show notes for sure. Amazing. So um, being Filipino is a really big part of my work. And all of the folklore and all of the magic and all of the supernatural that I'm very much interested in is all deeply rooted in my heritage. And so um, there is, when I, when I started doing my master's degree in Montreal, I was already starting to begin thinking about this idea of fragmentation and multiplicity through my um, my personal experience of being an immigrant and our our immigration as my you know departure point for my work and at that time I was thinking about the things that you take with you and the things that you leave behind when you're moving around and that could be as big as moving country to country but it can be city to city or even neighborhood to neighborhood or even homes to home or even room to room mm -hmm. and how you sort of leave traces of you behind. So I was really interested in this idea of like attachment, detachment and, um, and the leaving and the traces. And at, this, at the time, I thought, well, you know, as a child, what do I bring with me? Because I don't really have much to bring with me. I'm really young and my experience of life is so small, but I do recall the stories and the narratives that were told to me. So I brought those with me. Those were the things that I brought to Canada. And I have this aunt who I love very much, and her name is Rosalind, and she would be the one to tell me all of the folklore. And, you know, as a kid, I really wasn't interested in, you know, fairy tales and sort of pleasantries. I was really drawn to, like, the more grotesque and dark parts of the folklore. And specifically, there is this one character called an aswang. An aswang. An aswang. Mm -hmm. It's spelled in various ways. It can be A-S-U-A-N-G or A-S-W-A-N-G. And um, the story of the aswang as a character can really differ from region to region or from who's telling the story. And so as we know about folklore, that's usually how they mutate and change and evolve over time, which is a beautiful thing about mm -hmm. oral traditions. Mm -hmm. So with the aswang, the way that I understood it, a specific one um, is called a mananangal. That's a little bit harder to spell. <laughs> but a mananangal translates to um, to separate or to remove... Um, but so this specific one is usually a woman, uh, usually with long black hair, um, can be somebody in your neighborhood, can be somebody that is a neighbor, um, looks like a regular human in the day, but at night has the ability to self-sever. So they're the ability to divide at their waist and they have to discard their lower half and hide it somewhere in the night while their upper half uh, flies away and hunts and does some pretty gruesome things like um, eating viscera and eating babies and these um, very scary, gross, macabre things. And then at the end of the night, the upper half has to rejoin their lower half, otherwise they die fragmented. So this idea of attachment-detachment was a really important thing for this character survival. I usually just say she's a hybrid between a witch and a vampire in that she's sort of this viscera sucker and she she eats 
the viscera. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's also a witch because she sort of operates on the outskirts. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. immediately um, that character started to become and inform everything about my artwork going forward. So even if you look at my works now and if you look at the works at Coven Ring or anything that I that I make or draw, the Aswan character um, is embodied in all of them. So you might see um, characters that have multiple limbs that might be severed, disjointed. Uh, you might see a figure that's covered in like a shroud. All of those um, versions are all my reconfigured versions of what an Aswan is to talk about. Um, this idea of multiplicity and, and strength and empowerment through personal experience. And so another thing, too, is if you see the Aswangs, the kind of no, most newest iteration of it would be the ones that are shrouded, and they have what look like some sort of garment that kind of covers them, that looks like it's blotchy with ink. And um, basically what that, quote, garment is, is really a skin. It's not really a fabric, and they're not really hiding behind a fabric. They're actually revealing themselves through the fabric. And the fabric is a skin that's covered in blotches that are meant to represent ink and blood and dirt and rot and the cosmos and all of those things really speak about experience and the way that you apply ink is a very it's very hard to control ink but you can to an extent but then you also have to give in to its fluidity and so every time I make those drawings or paintings or tattoos um, they all are very different and those aswangs show their experience through their skin so it's not so much about um concealing it's really about revealing through choice so you've sort of taken this iconography of like a monsterish creature Mm -hmm. and and used it as a symbol of empowerment yeah and i think that is like witchcraft at its core (laughs) (laughs) and i'll tell you another thing too so there's this really amazing paper that was written by herminia kimpo manez and it's about um i think it's called the aswang mythology and the politics of gender Mm. um i might actually have messed that title up but it's something like that Mm -hmm. anyway so it's hermenia kimpomenez and in this essay she argues that the aswang actually comes after colonization so the philippines was colonized in Mm -hmm. for 300 years by the spanish Mm -hmm. and so before they were colonized they were a people that were quite egalitarian and they had healers and shamans called Babaylan. Yes, and for those of you who are listening right now, tune in next Sunday for our episode about Urduja, a very famous and wonderful Babaylan. Amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> so Babaylan. Um, and so what they say, actually, in, what she argues in this, in this paper is that during um, the colonization and during the missionizing of the people, um, they had to take pre-existing belief systems and invert them in order to Catholicize. Mm -hmm. And so these um, shamans who were in charge of midwifery and healing and spiritual practices that were all life-giving were then demonized and villainized to become life-taking. And so she argues in her paper that even this idea of severing from your lower half means that you're severing away from your reproductive organs Mm -hmm. and you're starting to represent sort of the the opposite side of life giving and um and this colonial fragmentation exactly yeah Yeah. and so she really becomes this malicious malevolent um creature and we saw this with medusa too right yes Mm -hmm. with medusa Mm -hmm. it was Um, like a a, for those of you who don't know the backstory behind the head of snakes medusa was a rape victim yeah she was a she was a victim of abuse Mm -hmm. and yeah, Medusa is a really powerful figure. Yeah. And I actually do a lot of tattoos of Medusa heads because mm-hmm. she's quite important. And, and I mean, a lot of us can relate to this, like, oh, you're an angry, insert whatever you are here, an mm-hmm. angry woman, an angry this, an angry mm-hmm. that. And completely discounting the steps that angered us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know? There's a process of that anger. Mm-hmm. And that anger is an important thing. It's an important protest. How does witchcraft manifest in, like, your regular day life? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's really interesting because I don't, I haven't really like looked at it through that, that lens where I go, well, what is, what are the things I do? But, you know, talking to you more and more, I do have a lot of rituals that I, I do that are quite 
And I think it's important to think about witchcraft as something that's very open-ended, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's what's important. And if there's anything that I want to convey is that maybe my witchcraft is the fact that I am very open. Um, I think that, you know, to be open and to allow a porousness to happen between you and your experiences, the people you meet, the way that you see a situation, the way you start your day, I think that's really important. And I think that's maybe the best way to describe what my witchcraft is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I also do some very specific things every day that <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if you can necessarily call this witchcraft, but I just have those. Everybody has their rituals or morning rituals. There are specific way they take their coffee, their specific way. I have to have my red rose. First thing in the morning. You're talking about the tea, not the flower. Oh yes. Oh yes. My fiance has to come into the room with a single red rose every morning. No, we're talking about a cup of tea. Don't get so bougie. Oh yeah, yeah. Just like cup of tea is the most unbougie. Unbougie of the bougies. I do love my red rose, and I do love a single egg in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's this thing where, um, you know, if anything, when we talk about bodies. It's the thing that I really feel like as soon as I ingest it, I feel awake mm-hmm. and I feel conscious of my body. Um, oftentimes when I do wake up in the morning and before I go to bed, I do just say a thanks to the universe. I do that um, because I have a lot of things to be grateful for and I definitely um, am aware of my privilege and that's something that I carry with me and I have gratitude for. Um, to make sure that I'm conscious and always conscious of what it is that the gifts that I have and also, um, yeah, my place and how to share it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think gratitude is definitely one of the witchiest things out there, just like um, because of all the things that we take for granted. Like, yeah. That breath yeah. that I just took, that air was just sitting there yeah. ready and waiting for. We don't thank the air. Witches do. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. <laughs> thank you, air. You thank, know, like, yeah, no, thank, okay. thank you, air. Thank you, air. Yeah. I definitely thank my body a lot for getting me to and from. Mm-hmm. That is something I do. And also when I was boxing, um, I don't competitively box anymore, but there was a time that I did. And mm. that was... It was a really time-consuming moment in my life, and it was the kind of thing where I couldn't really have anything else outside of it because it occupied so much of my brain space and so much of my body. And, you know, you had to be very conscious of what you ate and how you exercised and how you spent your free time, and it really didn't leave a ton of space for other things. And so I really gave that my all, and it, it answered a lot of questions that I had at the time. Those questions are answered now, and I don't really need to go there. Plus, I really am so protective of my head now more than ever. Like your physical, my physical yeah. head, because you know when I was boxing, it was, it was very violent to my head mm-hmm. and you know to my body, and but, but the head, and we think about brain trauma a lot these days, and that's something that. I'm just so grateful that I didn't really do a lot of damage. But anyway, it was a really powerful moment in my life. I don't think I can recreate it, and I'm so happy to leave it where where it is. Um, and what it's done for me. So when I think back, I have a lot of gratitude for the strength that I gained during that time. And that's another great thing about being a witch is that you accept that change is good, that the moon has phases, and so do we. You're not like, well, I'm a professional, you know, competitive boxer, and that's what I am now, and I'm going to, like, die on this hill. Like, you're allowed to stop asking the question when you get the answer. You're allowed to... What's that quote? You're um, under no obligation to be the same person you were five minutes ago? Uh, Yeah. It's, again, remember, like, my magic and my witchcraft is the power of choice. So you can choose and do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Let's get into that more, because a lot of your early life, you had no choice. Mm -hmm. So do you think that your um, focus on this idea of choice is a reaction to that, or...? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't really think that my inability to choose because I was a child really affected me. If anything, I really honored that time because I honor the fact that my parents made an incredible choice, which was to leave the Philippines and to come to Canada for a life for their kids. So there's three of us. My, I have an older brother and a younger sister. The Libra um, middle child. Libra middle child. <laughs> and I, I love my siblings very much. And so... Um, yeah, if anything, I really think back to those moments and think about how 
powerful that was for them to leave their families behind and come to a country that they didn't know anybody in um, and weren't strong in the language and, you know, it's a completely different landscape, social landscape, geographical landscape, um, and to make a life for themselves. And so, if anything, I just, I'm able to do and think and feel the way that I can um, because of them. So it's not even really as much of a rebellion, even though sometimes I do think a lot that there was a lot of um, pushback. Um, you know, as a kid, I went to church a lot. Like I went to my, my I was raised Christian and Roman Catholic. So um, obviously I don't go to church anymore and I haven't. And I feel like that was a very conscious choice. And that was like a, a choice to really disavow that and um be a free thinker Mm -hmm. and i think that's really again the power is is being a free thinker uh, would you say that it's not catholicism that you rejected so much as dogma in general then yeah yeah just the dogma but you know i think like (laughs) this is really funny because it's not exactly the same thing but sort of but i think like even like growing up i was just really skeptical of male figures Mm-hmm. To be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. I really was. Like, I hated, and to this day still do, Santa Claus. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Give us your perspective on Santa Claus. Oh, my gosh. Who is this old white guy who's supposed to tell us if we were good or bad and then withhold gifts? How dare you judge me? How dare you judge me? I remember my mom, she would, you know, put these Christmas gifts out and then she would sign, like, to Goldie, love Santa. And I would, I would glare at her because I would be like... Do you think that I'm so dumb as to think that you, that there's a true Santa? Like, Mom, this is your writing. Come on. Mm-hmm. I was like nine. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I tread lightly on that because I don't want to ruin that for other people who have kids. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, one of my one of my girlfriends has a, a son who's like ten now, yeah. and so he's you know, and, and she's like a very honest and very like um, atheist person not that those two things necessarily always go together but for her she's like very direct very atheistic but she's like I'm not gonna tell my kid this so he can go to school and like ruin Christmas for 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 everyone else exactly I like I find Santa Claus very problematic too um some of our listeners probably know this already but the idea of a kid thinking that they weren't good enough yeah. Like that. Okay, your mom is like struggling at her minimum wage job, and she can't figure out how to get a Christmas present for you. And you're thinking, as a little child, well, I was bad, yeah. so Santa didn't bring me anything yeah. this year. Like it's so problematic it so on problem. so many levels. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Yeah, but this <laughs> yeah. is like your your white male old man authority Christmas of <laughs> the Christmas yeah. authority figure. So that yeah. was like your first taste of like. Yeah. This patriarchy business is not working for me. I think so, yeah. And I also just didn't appreciate this, you know, um, hoopla at the mall where you'd have to line up and sit on his lap. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Like, I don't need to say anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, patriarchy has this weird way of normalizing really, like, (laughs) really weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But also, I hope that... uh, for those people who uh, I'm related to, sorry, because <laughs> <laughs> they got kids, they got kids, and I don't want I don't want it ruined for them. Yeah, but maybe yeah. like as a society, yeah. we could like sort of change that thinking. I mean, that's what know? I would like. I mean, for me to have a little voice in that is as much as I can do. You yeah. know. So let's yeah. just say, I mean, we're a long way away from Christmas right now, so you'll have plenty of time to prepare. <laughs> so maybe start laying this groundwork if you have young children. That, like, <laughs> maybe it's not healthy for like a being to be watching you and judging you and then if we can extend that into our dogmatic notion of god then we can get some world changing going there you go there you go (laughs) so you are so multimedia Mm um can you get into like i know uh, you said you're a musician but you've also done like sound Mm -hmm. art basically you're like dealing with all of the senses yeah so get into that please um I feel like that just again has to do with my idea of being open I I think just like as an artist I have my favorites of how to make um my my images and how to make sensations but I don't really want to rely on just one right and so that's why I've got the tattooing um for me that really taps into this idea of intimacy with another person and it's very small a tattoo even though the tattoos I give are you know 
proportionally big because they take up space on their body. To me, that they're quite small images still. Because you were talking before, usually your art yeah. is quite large scale, yeah. so a human body doesn't even have enough yeah. skin space for you to yeah. do that kind of large scale. Yeah, exactly. And it's also really nice because they are, you know, they're. I can finish them in one sitting and, you know, a few hours or maybe even a couple sittings. But regardless, they're not like these paintings that take weeks and weeks and weeks to complete. Um, so that for me is, is pleasurable and there's joy in that in, in the various ways of making work, I suppose. Um, working with sound is something that's been interesting to me because I, you know, learned how to play guitar when I was younger and um, singing is something that's part of my family. My dad's a really good singer um, and I just really like singing and having a voice. Also, I'm Filipino, so we karaoke all the time. It's sort of just like part of it. Um, but uh, yeah, so kind of incorporating music, sound, and that sort of texture into my work was was really interesting. And recently I have an exhibition opening where um, I collaborated with a musician, Mahmoud Hussein, and um, I, I recorded a poem that I wrote about this burning woman that was made out of gold and how her ashes kind of go into the air and they become, and they settle and they become the dust that we take, um, we take into as charcoal and we make markings on our skin. And then I say that in Tagalog, which is my mother tongue, that I don't speak fluently. But then I record myself singing, uh, sort of repeating this poem. And then Mahmoud went and he um, sort of digitized it. And, and he's an electronic musician. So he made a composition in a soundscape. And that is going to be like the soundtrack to this film that I, I recorded of an actual sculpture of a gold woman that I made that is made out of gold and plaster and she's um, laying on a pyre basically mm -hmm. of stones and then I, I set her on fire and she she's on fire and she smokes and then parts of her body disintegrate one at a time so her leg falls off and then her head rolls down and then her other and then what's left is this golden hand on top of the pyre and it's it's really beautiful imagery that I could what never have this, planned. Um, what was the um, the hand that we were talking about before? The hand of glory. The hand of glory. Yeah. The sacred hand? No, that's not it. <laughs> so you're left with this alternate hand of glory. Yeah, yeah, in some ways. It's really quite fascinating. I mean, hands have been a really big part of my visual imagery. So if you kind of go back and you look at all of my work, a lot of, um, it just, it celebrates the hand in so many ways. So there's lots of severed hands, a lot of blackened hands and a lot of hands that are ornate and decorated and um yeah so hands are quite important mm -hmm. to me so I could not have planned that and that was an unintentional thing that happened and it just was the universe oh don't you just feel like that's like a gift from the gods when you're just yeah. like experimenting and then the experiment is like works. so much more successful yeah. than you yeah. could ever and that again that feels to me when I'm in that process of creating when it really pays off like that yeah it's it's like spell work yeah. producing fruit you know yeah. that's what it feels like to me yeah yeah and in that situation where you know we set this woman on fire there's just no way to ever know how that's gonna go you know you're working with flame and smoke and wind yeah and uncontrollable. so how do you yeah. know how that's gonna burn off you don't <laughs> and that's <laughs> yeah. the most exciting part yeah yeah so hopefully you'll get to see this show amy mm -hmm. you're doing a show here in montreal which is opening it opens March 23rd, and it runs until April the 20th. Okay, so you guys will hear this and have plenty of time. Where is it? It's just it's in case the, our Montreal at, listeners actually Yeah, it's at out. the May, and that's the Montreal Arts Intercultural Museum. And what neighborhood is that in? Um, it's on Jean Mans, so I feel like it might be considered plateau still, or so maybe it's on its way to being downtown. The MAI uh, on the plateau, please go and check out this uh, exhibition. And can you tell some of our listeners who are like, maybe I'll go down to this, what can they expect to find? So that exhibition is called Malaginto, which means golden. Mm. And that exhibition features all of my new ceramic works that I've never ceramics. had. Yeah, ceramics. <laughs> so it's a lot of like sculpture ceramics, um, and every single one has been drawn on by me, mm. and then also so um, there's 22 karat gold on each one. So it's sort of this thing uh, where I'm, I'm tapping into this idea of gold and alchemy. And also pre-colonial Philippines um, had a lot of gold in it as well. So 
Talking a little bit, a little nod to my culture. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was part of the reason it was such an important place to overtake, was mm-hmm. to get all that sweet, sweet gold, right? Uh, yeah, and I just, I feel like the history of the Philippines is something that I am, I'm sort of mining, if mm. I can say, uh, every day. And there's just so much to learn. Um, and also just like growing up in Canada, you know, you don't really, you don't hear about it every day. Obviously, I, I don't. Um, my parents didn't really sit me down and say, here's some history books. Now read about like where you come from. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of thing where, and I think everybody does this, they go back and they they unravel their histories a little at a time. And that's really what my work is about and, and me as well, is that, you know, taking apart things and unpacking things slowly and processing them in between. And then putting them back together in your own... Yeah, weaving it together differently and creating my own mythology. And then you've got another show? Um... Yeah, in Edmonton at the Art Gallery Alberta, there's an exhibition there called Surface Tether. And it's um, featuring a lot of my big paintings as well as some photography of tattooing that I've done. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. some landscape work in there too, Yeah, right? it's actually, so Surface Heather really deals with body as a landscape and landscape as bodies. Which makes perfect sense in tattooing, that, that relationship. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I have um, in that exhibition some very big paintings with uh, a swang sort of decomposing in the land. I have ink drawings of the swang shrouded figures. There's a lot of just very still quiet paintings of landscapes, um, desert scapes almost, with gradient skies. And then um, photography that was a collaboration with Stacey Watson. And it's a, um, it's a session, a tattoo session that I have with my friend Lubert, who I tattooed across their chest, one of my desert landscapes. So it's really like an amalgamation of all of the things I talk about and kind of happened in that one session. Mm-hmm. And again, we see this a lot in witchcraft where we take things that might not necessarily make sense in other people's minds to put together and put them together to manifest new and different things. New possibilities. New possibilities and all kinds of choice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So before we completely run out of bandwidth here, help me wrap it up. Like, what is the gospel according to Marigold Santos? Um, That you are empowered and that you always are. That you are empowered and that you always are. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that one more time. No, you are. You say it one more time for the people in the back row. That you are empowered and that you always are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you, Amy. Absolute delight. And y'all, if you're in Montreal, if you're in Edmonton, um, we're going to post links. Go and check out Marigold's art. I mean, you heard us talking about it. Now go experience it. We love you. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Thanks for listening to the Missing Witches podcast. Be sure to come back Sunday where we hear the story of another Philippinex marvel, warrior witch Babalan Uduja. And hit us up at missingwitches at gmail.com or on social media at missingwitches and blessed be.